Our scripture passage this evening is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We will read verses 1 through 15, which is the account of the fall, but our focus is verse 15. We will also be reading from the Belgic Confession, article 17, that's found on page 170 in your Forms and Prayers book. Genesis 3 and Belgic Confession, article 17. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we praise your name and we ask that as we read a a difficult passage, a text of our fall, of a, a sin, we do pray that we would see within it the gospel message and the hope that you give to us, your people. We pray strengthen he who speaks and we all who listen, that we would we would receive it, that we would be heartened and encouraged, convicted, that we would grow and receive grace through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. and She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We'll stop the reading there. I know it is in the middle of the narrative That is intentional. I want us to stop there to see where the grace comes in the midst of the sin that we, that is being discussed. It is rather abrupt all of a sudden. We are dealing with sin and then immediately enters a promise. That's why I want us to stop the reading there as we are, we, we could continue the reading and read of the curses, but there is the promise that we look to. I'm going to read it again, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
And now we read Belgic Confession Article 17. The title of this article is The Recovery of Fallen Man. Article 17 says this, We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man trembling all over was fleeing from him, and he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. People of God, I want to begin this evening with a story, a fictitious story, and yet one that I'm sure we could all relate to. Ten-year-old Tommy was told to clean the garage by his father one Saturday. Tommy thought he'd get to it later. Watching TV, playing outside, and enjoying no schoolwork, he was going to clean the garage in the afternoon. But his neighbor came by and wanted to play some ball. When Tommy said he couldn't because he had to clean the garage, his friend told him, Oh, come on, you don't have to do that. Did, did your dad really say when and how well you needed to clean the garage? We can play ball for a while, and then you can just clean the garage a bit, and it will all be fine. This sounded good to Tommy, so he played ball. When they finally finished, Tommy went in to check the clock and realized there wasn't any time to clean the garage. To make matters worse, he heard the garage door opening. I'm going to pause right there and say you, you might hear a reflection of what happened, what has happened to yours truly sometimes in, in his own life. That ominous garage door opening. We're like, uh-oh, that's, that, that's not good. His dad was back from work, and he hadn't cleaned the garage at all. He darted upstairs and closed the door like that was going to fix anything. And after a time, he heard the heavy footsteps of his dad coming up the stairs. He heard the knock on the door and the door opening to see his dad's face. His face was... Now if we stop the, the reading there, if we stop the story there, even for such a silly story, we want to know, well, what was his face? What did Tommy experience? And we might think, well, we just read this article, so we've sort of tipped our hand. Perhaps we'd say something like, and the door opened and his father's face was sad and yet compassionate or, or just, and yet he, he cared for him. Maybe that's what was on his dad's face. But why not anger? Why not anger? You see, we may be uh, dooming this story as its illustration purpose for such a small manner as not cleaning the garage. After all, does that really matter that much, not cleaning the garage? But what if it was something worse? What if Tommy had broken a window or totaled the car? Or what if Tommy wasn't a 10-year-old boy, but a young adult who had gotten in trouble with the mob? I know this is outlandish. It's meant to be. He, he got in trouble with the mob, and, and he, got, he rang up so much of a debt that now his whole family is, is they're, they're gunning for his family. They want to take his family out. And then we could say, well, what would his father's face have been then as he approached him? Yes, this is somewhat of a silly illustration. And yes, it's just a retelling of what we literally just read in Genesis in something of a modern way, but you get at it a little bit. Why would the father's face not be one of pure justice? After all, there was a problem. 
A sin had occurred, a miserable sin. This is a story we've read so many times, and we know it, that we forget how great of a sin it was. We forget what it cost. You see, as God approached that couple in the garden that long ago, we liken it to our own story, the heavy footsteps off the stairs, they hear God approaching, and they're afraid. And we could add to this story what we knew, that that the Father knew what this would cost. Father was not surprised, nor was he ignorant of knowing the only way to save these men he created. This couple who had fallen so miserably, what would it cost? Well, it would cost him his life. Can we say that about God? Can the divine really die? That's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? The divine to take for himself a human nature and die. And so we can literally say, even here in Genesis 3, as we look back, as God approached this failing, this failure of a couple, what would it cost him but his own life? He approached, yes, in justice. He approached, yes, in judgment. And yet grace. And yet mercy. The minor infraction of not cleaning the garage does pale in comparison to what happened here. And what we see here as the Belgic helps to clarify for us in God's word is we see first a God who pursues. A God who pursues. Our parents, our representatives fled. They heard the sound of God coming to them and they ran. As we talked about this morning, this was the loss of that fellowship. That fellowship that they had, they fled, they ran away. And we all know that. That's why I told that story of having done something wrong and hearing the person coming who can dispense with the justice and the consequences. And that's why as a young boy or girl, when we know that we disobeyed our parents, hearing them come home is scary. We're in the wrong and we know it. What's going to be the the punishment? What's going to be the consequences of what we've done? And this is far worse than not cleaning the garage. I had many times, mostly because I I broke a lot of things, and uh, I, you know, my my, the garage would open. I'd be like, I gotta tell tell my dad that I broke this light fixture because I was swinging a sword that I made, or I had done this, or something even worse. And you know you have to tell your dad, but you you don't want to, and you're scared. But it's not just breaking a light fixture. They broke creation. They were, as we saw, they were the kings. Adam was the king on earth. That's what he was created to be, to rule it, to government, to have dominion. And he broke it. And here comes the creator of that masterpiece. And in one sense, we could say from our fallen side, you better believe they fled. What else would they do? That's from our fallen and our sinful nature. And yet, what do we see? We see a God who pursues. We see this in the Belgic. I'm going to read that second half of it again. It's very beautiful. After describing the the way in which we've fallen so miserably in the death that we brought, it says this, that God set out to find him. Though man trembling all over was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, 
promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and notice that last line, and to make him blessed. That is not what we expect to come out of such a failure. That is not what we would ever expect God to do for those who have fallen so miserably. P.Y. DeYoung says, God comes to man, for there is no other way by which man can again come to God. The Bible shows how it was. God, who had been betrayed by his own children, and the Father knew this cost. But here comes the Father, knowing because of what they have done, what it would cost them, it would cost them, him, the life of his own beloved Son, and yet he makes this promise. And this, people of God, is a promise that would literally shape the rest of this world. You know, you, you study history. And when we study history in school, unless it's a, a really good, biblical, grounded school, you study history in this context of everything's sort of divorced. It just happens. Here's the fact, and we divide it all up into eras. And then we learn all the dates, and this person was significant then, and this person did this, and, and we, we learn it in such a way there's no shape to it. It just happens. It's happenstance, and that's what we think. And yet, no... What would shape the rest of the world? What would shape history and all events to come? This promise. This very promise of a coming Savior, of one to crush the serpent's head. It's a grand act of recovery. As the title of the Belgic says, this is the recovery of fallen man, and this promise would shape everything that would follow. It would become... It would be because of this promise that Noah would receive assurance that the world would not be destroyed by a flood. For the world would be preserved. Why? Why would the world be preserved? So that this covenant promise could take place. The world would be preserved so that God's promise given to this couple who had sinned would mature and reach its end. And that's why there were no more floods that's why God did not destroy the world. That is why, people of God, that he is steadfastly loving and faithful. What is he being faithful to? This promise, given immediately at the sin of humanity. This promise would be the one to call a people in Abraham to choose this covenant people, and it would flow through Moses the people of Israel, as we're well acquainted with at this point, and this promise would continue to a royal line of David from which would come the monarch of the covenant that would be eternal. This promise would be seen when the serpent's head would finally be crushed, even as he bruised the heel of the Lord. You see, we can imagine all of these things. We can see all these things because our God is faithful to his word, all because our Father came to his wayward children and made this promise. What did he give to them? What did he give to us? Hope. When you have fallen so greatly, when you have done something that bad that Adam and Eve did, it is without hope. All you're waiting for is the judgment that you deserve. I can only imagine the hope that Adam and Eve had. You see, in this text, there, it's almost warring factions in, in the midst of probably the saddest text in the Bible. Perhaps we could say that's when Christ is crucified. 
what I mean by, by this is this is the fall. This began at all. This is so sad. And in the midst of this sadness and grief, all of a sudden there's this hope, this even joy to rejoice in. God didn't leave them. He gave them a promise, a covenant of grace. That's what this is called. This is the covenant of grace that he began in Genesis 3. And that's what we'll look at today. That's our second point, the covenant of grace. So first we've seen a God who pursues. Now we see the covenant of grace. How would we define the covenant of grace? We could say something like this. The covenant of grace is a promise made with Christ and his elect that eternal life and salvation would come through faith in him and his sacrifice for them on the cross. The covenant of grace is the promise made with Christ and his elect that eternal life and salvation would come through faith in him and in his sacrifice for them on the cross. That's what Article 17 is describing. It describes it very beautifully. It doesn't use those terms, and that is exactly what it's describing, a pursuit of God, even seeking to bring them grace and blessing, and that is his promise begun there to crush the head of a serpent. And that's where it comes down to. Ultimately, the promise is, is evil needs to be defeated, and there needs to be one to defeat it. And so there's a promise of a seed that there would descend from these two, one who would crush the head of the serpent, yet it would be the seed of the woman. And there are two ways to view this seed. We, we see that the seed is indeed the covenant community, the people of God. It, it comes from Adam, and it goes through Seth, and it goes through Noah, and it goes through eventually Abraham, and on and on and on. And there is that seed in that sense. This is a promise given to that line, this gracious promise to them. And yet we know from Galatians and other places that this is a singular seed given, our Lord And so this one great promise given in Genesis includes all the promises or is the foundation of all the promises that would come. Our text has been called the mother promise. Genesis 3.15 has been called the mother promise because it gives birth to all the other promises and plus it was made and that there would be one to descend from this mother, from a woman. So it is the mother promise. All of them come from this And the battle between the seed of God and the seed of the serpent goes out, and there are two different seeds. And you see that immediately in their family. In the birth of Cain and Abel, and there's this friction, and there's this fight. But that fight's good. They could have given birth to two Cains. God could have let the world just rip itself apart, and yet there was a promised line who he showed grace that's what we see as we look through the various aspects of this covenant. We see that first it is gracious. That's sort of redundant, isn't it? The covenant of grace is gracious? You betcha. The covenant of grace is gracious. God's pursuit of his children had nothing to do with us. You can think of it this way. If Hollywood was writing this story, they would probably write it, and us as mankind would be something of a, a fallen character, but tragic a tragic story. There's, they fell, but there's a redeemable quality there. They're not all bad. And so the, the sovereign Lord saves them. There, there's still something there. Is, well, that's not the case. There was that total depravity that came, and yet God showed love. So why did God pursue us? That's an important question we need to ask. Why the covenant of grace? Here's why. 
so that God might be glorified because of his love for those he eternally knew. We saw last time. Last time we looked at the doctrine of election, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world itself, that we were chosen. But why? So that he might be glorified because of his love for those he eternally knew. This is what we mean by the covenant of grace. It's unmerited. It was kept by God. He upheld the stipulations. And we didn't deserve it in any way. See, and we keep living as if we need to be good enough. We, or we think at times that we need to be good enough. Or others, the world lives as if it's about works, but it's not. Thomas Chalmers once received a letter from a distressed soul. He replied, The truth is that your great error lies in making your comfort depend on the question, Do I believe? When you should make a turn upon the question, is God willing to receive me for Christ's sake? When you say it that way, it really puts it into perspective. We can lose all of our assurance in that question, do I believe? Do I believe enough? Am I good enough? Do I believe enough? Making belief itself a work. And yet, really, what we should be asking ourselves, is God willing to receive me for Christ's sake? And when you say it that way, the answer is yes, because what's, what's the opposite? No? That Christ's sake isn't enough? This all comes to us because of the covenant of grace. And I want us to comp- contemplate this truth. God was pleased to comfort fallen man. Very simple statement. There's nothing new that we haven't heard there before. But just unpack that in your mind. God was pleased to comfort fallen man. It pleased him to go to them and offer them hope and a promise because he loved them, because he loved us. We can't begin to understand the depths of God's love. It's all present here, even in Genesis 3. That's why I stopped reading at verse 15. The curses follow. Justice follows. Tommy didn't clean his garage, and his father would give a punishment. If he was a good father, there would be justice. And yet, a good father also loves and cares. And in fact, the failure becomes a source of growth, a way to grow closer to him. That's what we need to comprehend. God was pleased to comfort fallen man himself. Put it another way, your Father in heaven cares. You might think, I know that. Of course he cares. He really cares. Whatever you're suffering with right now, he cares. If he can show such love to our parents who fell, can he not show such love to those he chose and has redeemed in Christ? And I know we think, yeah, we got that, but that is a profound truth that shapes all of our life, that God cares for us. If that wasn't true, what's the point? Why would we be here? There would be no point to life itself but that God cares for his people. Don't think of God too impersonal. He was just a force. This was just his plan, and so he did it. 
He is. There is personality to God. Now that we know as we define it, there are three persons in the triune Godhead. I'm not really meaning that term of person. What I mean is that he isn't just a mere force that happens. Though we say that God is impassable, what does impassable mean? It means he's not subject to changing emotions like us. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. He does. Evidence right here in a promise that would cost him everything. And would cost Adam and Eve nothing. He took the penalty. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 10 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This covenant is gracious. It is that defining characteristic of it. It is not our merit. It is not what we've done. It is the love and grace of God. We need to comprehend that great truth that God loves me. This covenant is gracious, but it's also Trinitarian. This is somewhat obvious. When God acts, he acts as himself, as a triune God. But we want to draw attention to that here because the covenant of grace was itself based upon a pact, a promise, a covenant made between the persons of the Trinity themselves. How do we understand that and look at that? We can't fully comprehend that, but we say that there was indeed a decision between the members of the Trinity to indeed save those who he had elected and chosen, and that they would be indeed saved in Christ. Well, how do we know this? As we looked at last time, we were elected in the name of Christ, chosen before the world began. That choice to save in Christ was part of that Trinitarian council, which we call the covenant of redemption. So this covenant, the covenant of grace, is based upon that covenant of redemption. It's Trinitarian. They are all involved in it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all involved in the redemption of man. The Father the Father predestines, elects, he ordains, and the Son carries out the Father's will, and the Spirit applies it. Why do we say that? We've said numerous things like that before. We've got to hammer that into our heads. This is God who acts. This is our triune God that we must know his being. He is acting in the covenant of grace. It's Trinitarian, based upon that eternal will and plan. That's as far as we're going to go with that. I know that is very brief, but we've talked about this before. The covenant covenant of grace is Trinitarian, but the covenant of grace is also one. What do we mean by that? The covenant of grace is one. It is everywhere and at all times one in essence. This means there's only ever been one covenant of grace. The covenant is expanded to, it's added to, it's changed, it's administered in different ways, but there's one covenant. What do we mean there? Well, you have the covenant made with Adam and Eve in the garden where there is this promise. But it gets furthered. It gets administered in a certain way up until the time of Abraham, 
where it is expanded, it's deepened, it's widened, and now the covenant becomes centered on this individual and his, his line, his direct line. And then it grows, and it's further during the time of Moses with the law and David with the promise of an eternal king. This is how the covenant proceeds. What those are called are dispensations. Dispensations of the covenant. Various epochs or eras, time frames in which it functioned this way. We speak of the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we mean. When the covenant was administered during that time through sacrifices, through offerings, the the prophets, that's the way it was administered during that time. We stand in a different era of covenant theology, but we don't stand in a different covenant. The covenant to which we belong is the same covenant, but now it's reached its maturation. It's that mature, it's reached that expression where now we're governed by what? Well, the administration of the sacraments, the preaching of God's word, all that have ties into the past, but are administered in different ways. One covenant, though. One way of salvation. Why? Because of the one promised seed in Genesis 3. Who is the one to save? The one who would crush the serpent's own head. One covenant. This matters when others would try to rip the covenants apart to say that as each one comes, the other one goes, and we reject those. No, it is one covenant. Danny Hyde, a pastor, has written a commentary on this. It says about the covenant of grace, it's fulfilled by God himself. It is gracious. That is, it's characterized not by the words, do this and live, but by the words, it is finished. The covenant of works... The covenant Adam was created under, that by his works he could achieve salvation. He was governed by that great truth. Do this and live. The covenant of grace is governed by, rather, no, it is finished. Finished in Christ. We see also that it is particular. It is particular. What do we mean there? It is made with particular people. Organic in its character. Election is fixed on particular individual persons who God knew beforehand. We talked a lot about this last time with election. And yet we see God has determined to operate in a covenant community. God operates with a people he has chosen. And so that covenant and his plans for redemption flow through even Abraham and his direct descendants through families. That's true today. It's not that people cannot be brought in and convert to this covenant, but God has elected that the covenant of grace would flow through a chosen people, our particular group, who are themselves tasked with the preaching of God's word, going out, making disciples. It comes through a particular people that he has elected and chosen. It wasn't random. We see this as well, that it is the the preaching it's a means of grace. This is the way God has made disciples of the people through evangelism. God has chosen to work in this way, but it is through the covenant community that salvation by faith flows. We are all converts to that, brought into the covenant people, and by our own being brought in, the promises are given to our children as well. That does not necessitate, that does not mean that our children will be then saved. But what it does show is that it is brought through families. It is brought through a covenant group, a chosen people. And so we see the grace of God in saving his own line, his own seed. 
The recovery of fallen man is amazing. We began with that little short story of disobedience. Poor Tommy. Poor Tommy and, and what he'd done, but he had done it. Justice is coming. How would the Father respond? This is a thought I want to leave us with. I'm sure we've all experienced with it, this, have experienced with this. When you have people you greatly respect who are themselves very upright, their opinion matters and you care. This is heightened when they actually have the authority over you. But perhaps worse than the thought of the judgment is what will they think of me? This person that I respect. And so what often happens to these people we, re- we respect, we try to hide sin or our failure. We don't know what they'll do. I can only imagine Adam and Eve having thought these thoughts about what they had done to God. It's a very human emotion in what we have done this person, whose opinion means the whole world to me. What's he going to know? What's he going to think about when he sees my sin? I want us to stew in that. It's very uncomfortable when we're in that position. And yet maybe you've experienced this, that with this person that you greatly respect, eventually you either tell them your failure or your sin or the circumstances come out. And then this person does not cast you away. This person shows compassion and love. And it's like a light bulb that goes off. It's like something just switches. And what was profound agony that you felt in your gut that just hurt you is all of a sudden removed and out comes pure joy and you can't even believe that this person does not judge you like that, that does not see your only failure and judge you according to that, but instead cares and loves. That is what we have in our God. The very one we would expect to just cast us out because he is so righteous. The one who loves fallen sinners chosen us and given us Compassion, And so as sad as the fall is, as sad as Genesis 3 is, notice that undercurrent of hope and joy. I want to end again with that reading. I know we're reading it three times, but it's, it's so good. We've got to keep reading it. The end of the Belgic. After explaining that miserable death, it says that God set out to find him. Though man trembling all over was fleeing from him, And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, to make him bless. So what did God do to our first parents? They were covered with shameful fig leaves. And what did he do? He sacrificed an animal and gave him proper garments to cover the mark of their shame mark of their sin. I know we've heard it before. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do is preach on something we've heard before because we know it. We need to live this. 
This is what gets us through life, brothers and sisters. This is, this is it. If we don't have that understanding and that love for God and what He has done, then, then we're wasting our time here. We respond to Him in love for what He's done. The compassion that He shows us, and it is this that makes us desire Him. This is why we serve Him, because it's this, this great of news. And in this we rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we turn to you and praise your name. We see even in the midst of a fall, of a grand and great fall, your love, your abiding love and compassion. And though we count ourselves as blessed, we don't count ourselves worthy. And though we trust in your love, we know that it is not on our own strength or, or worth, but Christ and your word a promise spoken so long ago that you would crush our enemy, you would save us from our sin, and thus we have, again, fellowship and eternal life. Convict us, Lord, and just let this truth be what draws us near to you to praise your name. We pray all of this in our dear Savior's name who has accomplished this for us.